Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. History of Persia is a Hopful Media podcast production. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp Therapy Online. Life doesn't come with a user manual, so when life stops working for you, it's pretty normal to feel stuck. Imagine somebody who spent, oh, say, 25 years being really distracted overwhelmed by clutter, and fluctuating between being really into obscure ancient history and not being able to find the motivation to do the dishes. That person is me, and apparently, if there were a user manual to life, it might have told me that I have ADHD and should talk to my doctor about that. Therapists are about as close to a manual as we can get, folks who are trained to help you figure out challenging emotions and learn coping skills. BetterHelp has connected millions of people with licensed, registered therapists for convenient and secure online therapy. It's convenient and 100% accessible online. No waiting rooms, no traffic, and not even endless googling of therapist near me. You just fill out a questionnaire and get matched with an appropriate therapist. And if it doesn't click, 
BetterHelp makes it easy to switch providers. Everyone deserves to feel their best, so get unstuck with BetterHelp. Learn more and save 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com persia. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash persia. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the History of Persia podcast. I'm Trevor Cully, and this is episode 32, Begun the Greek Wars Have. That's right, I do Star Wars references too. Last time, I covered the buildup of social and political tensions in the Ionian Greek cities of the Persian Empire, and the ultimate culmination of those problems in the wake of the Naxos incident. After a failed Persian invasion of the island of Naxos, Darius's Greek subjects decided that they had a chance to break free of the empire. They launched a revolt led by Aristagoras of Miletus in 499 BCE. He stepped down from his position as tyrant to become the leading general of the newly reformed Ionian League. They deposed the other Persian-backed tyrants and seized the Persian fleet at Mios. Meanwhile, Aristagoras set out to get support from independent Greek cities on the mainland. He secured 20 trireme ships from Athens and 5 from Eritrea. On land, that probably translated to an additional thousand or so men. We left this makeshift alliance on the brink of war. But before I can really dive into the fighting, it's time to properly introduce the Athenians, who will become a thorn in the Persian side for generations to come. If you couldn't tell from the disparity in the number of ships, Athens was the much larger and more powerful of the two mainland allies. Over the course of the podcast, I've mostly left the mainland Greeks to putz around and deal with their own internal politics by themselves. If you want to know exactly what they were doing, I suggest you check out the History of Ancient Greece podcast hosted by Ryan Stitt. It's very detailed, very well done, and very interesting. I also don't really have the time or need to tell an abbreviated history of all of Greece. I've covered the important steps from the Bronze Age to 499 in relation to Ionia, so there are really only three important things I want to cover for our reference. The first is the politics and political situation of Greece in 499. Okay, maybe not all of the politics and political systems we'd be here forever. During the palace-centric Mycenaean period at the end of the Bronze Age, and all through the so-called Dark Age, Greece, like so many other places, was ruled by kings. We've seen this system before, especially if you look back to episodes 1 and 3. This is how the Neo-Hittites, Phoenicians, and Aramaeans who lived in Syria and the Levant organized themselves. They were led by hereditary kings who ruled a pretty small local area and the surrounding countryside. This continued right into the period we call the Archaic Period of Greece. This was the time where the Greek population got large enough, and their new alphabetic writing system was widespread enough, that these little kingdoms started to get more complex. They started to trade with the Egyptians and Phoenicians more often, and they finished the Great Period of Greek Colonization, 
That was driven by decreased access to resources following the Bronze Age collapse, but a disproportionate return to population growth. It started with Greeks settling on the coast of Anatolia, establishing the Ionian cities, but they soon began to spread, and by the middle of the 6th century or so, there were Greek cities dotting the coastline from modern Crimea to Spain. At the same time, the Phoenicians were building colonies in places like Tripoli and Carthage. This massive expansion of trade led to the growth of a Greek merchant class. These people were wealthy, and wealthy people have more political power, especially in an ancient world with more mercenary armies. Merchants could challenge the existing aristocracy, and aristocrats could challenge the kings for reforms. Over the course of the 7th century BCE, these new power dynamics saw kings ousted from their hereditary thrones all over Greece. They were replaced by new popular rulers. These were usually still autocrats, but they weren't kings, not really. They had no traditional or legal basis for their power. Plus, they too could be removed if public opinion shifted. So they were called tyrants, and of course we've discussed these ad hoc autocrats already. Some of them even passed power to their sons, but that rarely lasted for more than a generation, as we'll soon see. Other cities began experimenting with oligarchic rule. Instead of a single leader, power was distributed across a few high-ranking citizens. Athens, so far as we know, was one of the first to take this route. Traditionally, it is said that they ousted their kings in favor of a council or court of elders and a group of three archons, which literally means rulers, sometime around 1068 BCE. But one of these archons ruled for life and had many of the king's old duties. The first two were even the sons of the last king, so it's not all that clear how this differed from just putting some checks and balances in place on the monarch or tyrant. And that's just one tradition. Another suggests that these earliest archons were just kings, and that the later Athenians tried to clean up their own histories. In the 8th century, some new offices, like Polemarch, the military ruler, were introduced to limit the powers of the archon for life. In 753, the Council of City Elders or Officials assembled on a hill called the Areopagus. This council is also generally called the Areopagus after that location. They elected to limit the archonship to just one ten-year term. Each decade, the Eupatridae, the Athenian name for their own aristocrats, would elect three of their own to serve as the eponymous archon, the polemarch, and the archon Basileus. The first, the eponymous, was the chief legal official in Athens, and also the one whose name was used to date that year, i.e. something happened in the eighth year under Leocrates or something like that. The polemarch was the chief military officer, and the archon Basileus held all of the ceremonial and religious roles that once were filled by the kings. In 683 BC, the Areopagus further limited the power of the archons, New archons now had to be elected each year. This had the dual effect of giving more men experience with those high offices and swelling the ranks of the Areopagus as former archons joined the city council. This system lasted for about 60 years before more drastic measures had to be taken. 
The exact circumstance remained unclear, but an Athenian jurist, probably a member of the Areopagus, was chosen to reform the Athenian legal system. This man was Draco, who created a new law code that was so famously strict that we still derive the word draconian from his name today. He created the first written law code in Athenian history and expanded the popular vote. He extended voting rights to any free man who could afford a full set of military equipment. In addition to the Areopagus, he created a council of 400 Athenians called the Boule by drawing lots among anyone eligible to vote. He also increased the number of archons to nine, with the six new acting as subordinate legal officials to the three originals. He made all sorts of other changes and rules too, but they're less important for our general context here. Barely a generation later, all of it would be remade from the ground up. Already ten years old when Draco wrote his law code, a man named Solon was made eponymous archon in 594 BCE. Possibly influenced by the reforms he witnessed as a child, Solon had some big ideas of his own. When he came to power, he introduced sweeping reforms. He had watched the wave of tyrants take over cities all across the Greek world with the support of the common people, who still vastly outnumbered the voting Athenians. And Solon wanted to avoid that in his own city. Solon sought to strengthen Athens, while simultaneously easing all of its internal tensions, be those ideological or economic, or simply ancestral blood feuds. He rewrote the law codes and eased off most of Draco's brutal punishments. He expanded the right to vote in the popular assembly to all free male citizens who were now allowed to gather and check the power of the archons in a body called the Ecclesia, which could form a court and even prosecute the Eupatridae and the Archons. Despite this, he also clearly defined different economic classes and granted them each specific rights and duties. On the other hand, he took drastic steps to secure the Athenians' economic prosperity. Fathers had to find careers for their sons. If they failed to do so, their sons had no obligations to help their fathers. Foreign merchants were offered citizenship if they settled in Athens with their families. Weights and measures for Athenian merchants and the minting of coins were standardized to become more competitive in the Mediterranean trading market. New denominations of coins were also adopted at this time to make trade more convenient in the city, and trade with the city more convenient. The exports of fruits other than olives was prohibited to encourage people to grow more profitable crops. And finally, he outlawed debt slavery, where a person uses themselves or a family member as collateral on a loan. These laws were legally unchangeable for ten years, and in that time, Solon left Athens behind to see the world. And while he was gone, this new system of democracy, literally rule of the populace, settled in, Despite his best efforts, even Solon couldn't end the age-old cultural and economic conflicts in Athens just by spreading power out to more people. One of his distant cousins, a man named Pisistratus, attempted a different strategy. Unlike his cousin, or Draco, Pisistratus watched the rise of all of the tyrants 
and thought, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. Over the course of the 550s, he became very popular with the newly enfranchised commoners and attempted a couple of coups in and around Athens. His first success made him the tyrant in 550 BCE. But that only lasted for a few years, and he fled to Laurion. This was the silver mining region of Athens, which I coincidentally just wrote a long post about and put on the Patreon page. While there, Pisistratus made friends with the wealthy silver mining families, and used that basis of financial support to hire some mercenaries and regain his tyranny after about ten years in exile. He remained tyrant until his death in 527. Sul rule of Athens passed to his eldest son, Hippias, which established the short-lived Pisistratid dynasty. The Pisistratids oversaw the massive building projects of the time, notably including the city's first aqueduct and the Athenian temple of Zeus. All through these events, the Athenians were expanding their power, of course, like most of the Greek cities of the time, they started by controlling just their own little region around the city of Athens. But over centuries of becoming stronger economically and culturally, they began to absorb smaller cities in the region of Attica, the southeastern promontory of the Greek mainland. We know surprisingly little about how this was accomplished. Some were probably drawn in slowly and incorporated, Others came into the Athenian fold through negotiations, but still others must have put up resistance. From the 8th to 6th centuries, these were fairly loose connections, but under Pisistratus, they began the process of extending direct governance to the suburbs of Athens and the rest of Attica. Conflicts that arose over the course of Athenian expansion would have been solved in military combat, but Greek warfare developed very differently from the wars in the Near East, which I've discussed up to this point. Persian armies were built to suit the resources and relatively open terrain of Mesopotamia or the Levant. They favored lightly armored Sparabara archers, alongside massive cavalry detachments. War chariots were still a regular sight, but heavy infantry was not, it is implied by Herodotus that the Immortals may have served in that heavy combat role, but Achaemenid depictions don't make it clear. The Greeks, on the other hand, developed a system suited to their own terrain and culture. A couple cities banded together to fight another few cities, in terrain broken up by highlands and mountains. In most of Greece, it was too expensive to keep many horses, and there wasn't really enough space to use cavalry or chariots to any great effect. Further, archery was never widely adopted by the Greeks. They had slingers and javelin throwers known as psiloi, but these neither had the range nor the maneuverability of archers. They didn't have the capacity to fill the sky with projectiles from across the battlefield. Instead, the Greeks developed a reliance on infantry, direct person-to-person -person combat. If we abide by the descriptions given in the Iliad, which not everyone does, this probably originated as men fighting hand-to-hand -hand with swords and axes and other short weapons. But by the late Archaic period we are discussing, the weapon of choice was the spear, called a duru. This was a 2.5 to 4.5 meter pike, over time, the design kept getting longer to give the wielder more and more reach. This was paired with a large round shield called an aspis. 
These were about one meter or three feet wide concave discs strapped to the left arm. They were composed of a wooden core with a layer of bronze facing the enemy and a layer of leather facing the user. I routinely wish that I knew more languages. Even right in the middle of the US, I run into Spanish speakers all the time, and my social media always has a little Persian, Arabic, some Dutch and German. Rosetta Stone does help. It's the most trusted language learning program after all. It's also conveniently available on desktop or on the go as an app and has some really cool features that truly immerse you in the language you're learning. Just the first steps, like learning a new alphabet and some simple phrases, helped open new doors, and Rosetta Stone is a great choice as the trusted expert in this for 30 years and millions of users with 25 languages available to learn. They focus on fast language acquisition, without English translations to help you learn, speak, listen, and think in your new language while building long-term retention. Their true accent speech recognition also gives feedback on pronunciation, which can be really important for languages like Persian, where how you say something is very important. And on top of being available for desktop and mobile, you have the option to download lessons and take them offline. This is also all available at a steal. You can get lifetime membership, all 25 languages, for 50% off. Don't put off learning that new language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, History of Persia listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com today today. Another name for this shield was a hoplon and thus the soldiers who used them were called hoplites. A hoplite's kit, or panoply, was rounded out with a short sword as a backup for the doru, and four pieces of armor. A helmet, a solid breastplate, and greaves covering each knee and calf. In the early days, this armor would have been made of bronze, but eventually iron became more common, and by the time of the wars with Persia, the breastplates were slowly being replaced with lighter and more maneuverable layers of hardened fabric called linothorax. The hoplites fought in a formation called a phalanx, several rows of soldiers lined up behind the other. Each man would cover the warrior to his left with part of his shield, creating a wall of overlapping hoplons like scales. They would aim their spears between the shields and charge the enemy, ideally this solid wall of oncoming bronze and blades would scare the enemy into breaking formation and fleeing. Failing that, the phalanxes would press into one another and fight, trying to break the other's formation and force a retreat. In any case, it was always crucial to defend the right flank because each soldier covered his comrade to the left with part of his shield, leaving the rightmost man in each line slightly more vulnerable. These tactics originated in the 8th century BCE, but depending on which book you read, they might not have been fully developed until some point during or after the wars with Persia. Unlike the Persian Sparabara, Greek cities could not furnish tens of thousands of these warriors. Hoplite armor was expensive to produce and obtain, and thus only relatively wealthy men could afford the whole panoply. 
some would be able to arm themselves with only the aspis and the doru, and maybe a low-quality breastplate, but even that took considerable funds. This is at odds with many modern models of infantry, where thousands of generally poorer people are hired or conscripted to fill out the front lines on the basis that they are more disposable. That's just what it is. The Greeks took an opposite approach, suggesting that only people with a personal or financial stake in the prosperity and safety of the polis could be trusted to actually fight for their lives. Poor men were sent with the army as psiloi, one part support staff and one part short-range weapons throwers. They generally tried to wear down the enemy or harass the enemy psiloi, and then got out of the way for the clashing hoplites. Athens had most likely adopted, if not exactly this, something very similar by the time of the Pisistratids. And even though Athens was now the chief city of the largest single territory in the Greek mainland, they never ceased to think of themselves as anything more than one city-state. The Greek word for a city is polis. But in the history of Greek political theory, that word took on much more meaning than our word for city. To Greek philosophers and authors, the polis was the ideal unit of government, an area of agricultural land and surrounding villages focused on the leadership of one mother city, a metropolis, literally, that's what it means, which acted as a hub of trade, high culture, and governance. Thus, polis is often translated as city-state, and that was the ideal system envisioned in Athens even as it grew to control more and more physical space. After the death of Pisistratus, the leadership of the Athenian polis fell to his son Hippias in 527, who governed alongside his brother Hipparchus. Hipparchus was assassinated in 514, which led Hippias to carry out a series of brutal crackdowns, purges, and harsh tax reprisals on the people and aristocrats of Athens. Around the same time, he married his daughter into the family of the tyrants of Lampsakos, one of the Persian subordinates in northern Anatolia. This opened up connections between Hippias and the satraps in Sardis. The anti-Hippias movement in Athens was spearheaded by an aristocratic family called the Alcmaeonidae, who sent envoys to Sparta and convinced their king, Cleomenes, who we met last time, to help overthrow the tyrant. In 510 BC, Cleomenes I led a Spartan army into Athens and took Hippias' family hostage. They were returned to the tyrant only after he abdicated his position and went into exile. He, of course, made a hard right turn, went off to the Persian Empire, and eventually was settled down in the court of Darius the Great. Cleomenes partnered with the Alcmaeonidae patriarch Cleisthenes to oversee the reintroduction of a 500-man Boule council to govern Athens, and then he occupied the Acropolis citadel at the center of the city with his army. True to its character, Athens promptly split into political factions— one was spearheaded by Cleisthenes and the Alcmaeonidae, while the other was led by an aristocrat named Isagoras. The Spartan king sided with Isagoras and supported him when he abolished the Boule Council. The Spartans and Isagoras forced the Alcmaeonidae family back into exile, 
and Isagoras was apparently angling to become Athens' new tyrant, but he didn't have the popularity or military support to sustain that. In fact, he had even less support now because he had ousted the more popular competition. Cleisthenes' supporters rallied the people of Athens around their cause and besieged the Spartans and Isagoras on the city Acropolis for two days. On the third day, they surrendered. Isagoras and the Spartans were allowed to flee the city, but 300 of Isagoras' chief supporters were executed. Cleisthenes returned and restored the democratic institutions and councils in 507 BCE. The Spartans, pretty reasonably, were not comfortable with the now very anti-Spartan faction in control of Athens, the biggest and richest polis in Greece. So Cleomenes rounded up a new Spartan army with some of their allies from the Peloponnese, the southwest peninsula of Greece, and they all set out to put Isagoras back in charge. The Athenian assembly, barely back on its feet, was understandably afraid of this much larger invasion force. They started preparing, but also sent a few envoys out to secure some new allies for Athens. And this is where we can finally start to circle back around to the Persians. Those Athenian envoys went to Sardis and asked the satrap Artaphernes for aid. Artaphernes, knowing that he had a limited window of opportunity, told the Athenians that he'd be happy to help on one condition. They present the Persian Empire with earth and water, the traditional symbol of surrendering their territory to the great king. The panicked Athenian ambassadors complied. Yeah, that's right. The Athenians offered their submission to the Persian Empire seven years before the outbreak of the Ionian Revolt. How's that for something that tends to be left out of the list of contributing factors to the later wars with Persia? The only reason it can be glossed over is because nothing really came of it before Athens did a lot more to anger the Persians. Apparently, Artaphernes also demanded that the Athenians take back Hippias, the Pisistratid, as their ruler. But they pointed out that getting rid of tyrants was kind of the whole point here and took their leave. When those envoys got back, they were decried and disavowed by the assembly, who promptly decided to throw out any ideas of submitting to Persia. It probably helped that the Corinthian allies had refused to march any further and forced the whole Spartan invasion force to call off their attack on Athens. It was easier for Athens to denounce the terms of a Persian alliance when it was no longer needed. Herodotus never raises the issue of that particular Athenian earth and water again, but it certainly seems like the kind of thing that the Achaemenids would have treated as a sign of submission and given a precedent to call any act of Athenian aggression an act of rebellion against the great king, which is exactly what Matt Waters suggests in his Concise History of the Achaemenid Empire. With the Spartan army turned back, and the Persian Empire once again out of sight and out of mind, the Athenians went back to mostly minding their own democracy for about seven years. Then, Aristagoras of Miletus turned up at their assembly at the end of the last episode. Apparently, he was very convincing, and they were feeling pretty good about themselves. So the Athenians and Eritreans sent 25 trireme ships, and at most a thousand hoplite soldiers to assist the Ionian cities in their rebellion. 
After assembling the combined forces of the Ionian cities with their new allies at Miletus in early 498, everyone boarded ships and sailed up the coast to Ephesus. Aristagoras did not lead this expedition himself, but sent his brother Caropinus and the Milesian general Hermaphontus to lead the opening offensives. Like some sort of ancient blitzkrieg, the Ionians rushed from Ephesus to Sardis as fast as they could to launch a surprise attack. Satrap Artaphernes already knew about the declaration of rebellion in Ionia, and had presumably already sent word to his brother, King Darius, to let him know that he would handle it. But it takes time for a Persian army to assemble. They had to gather all of the conscripts and reinforcements from all over Lydia, and of course all of these forces then had to travel overland through mountainous territory because the Greeks controlled the whole coastline. So Artaphernes was in Sardis with the only the first stages of his army when the Greeks suddenly turned up. The Ionian raiders quickly pushed the Persians back up into the fortified citadel of the local Acropolis and had free reign of the city. Evidently, there was some looting and pillaging going on because a fire started in all the chaos. Herodotus suggests that it was accidental, but it's just as plausible that some Greeks meant to light one thing on fire and it spread out of their control. Before long, Sardis was engulfed in flames. In the chaos of this inferno, the Persians pushed back out of the citadel and into the marketplace, where they began fighting with the Greeks and pushing them back. With the city in flames, Persian reinforcements on the way, and the mission probably accomplished, the Ionian force called for a retreat and hurried back to Ephesus. Speaking of mission accomplished, what exactly was the mission here? I'm genuinely asking, because Herodotus doesn't tell us. Capturing the city doesn't seem realistic. They box the Persians in, and Sardis is deep inland. Plus, there was already a Persian army on the way, which they had to know. That's how wars and rebellions work. They assemble an army. The Greeks would have been trapped and cut off if they stayed at Sardis. One good theory is that Aristagoras wanted to spark rebellious feelings in the other subjects of the Lydian satrapy. Under his theory, the Ionians wanted to deal a sudden, crushing blow to the Persians and expose their weaknesses in the same way that the Scythian and Naxos campaigns exposed them to the Greeks. Who knows, that might have happened if it weren't for the fire. See, when the dust settled and the flames had burnt out, the people of Sardis fully discovered the extent of the damage. Not only were most of their mud and reed construction buildings and homes gone after the city was filled with ash, but the temple to the great Lydian goddess Kibale had been razed to the ground. You can get away with a lot of things and still win people over as allies during a war. But burning their gods rarely goes down well. If Herodotus is anything to go by, vengeance for Kibale became the Persians' just casus belli, as if open rebellion wasn't cause enough. Herodotus happily strokes the Athenian ego by saying that when Darius heard about the disaster at Sardis, he swore vengeance and had a servant continuously remind him to remember the Athenians. Of course, it really is unlikely, but he may have sworn vengeance against rebels in general, which probably included Athens, at least in his mind. The Persian response was swift and deadly. 
Within a few days, enough of the Persian and Lydian reinforcements called up by Artaphernes had arrived to pursue the retreating Greeks. Persian cavalry probably raced ahead of any other pursuers to pin down the Greeks at Ephesus. I've commented before on how the development of Persian cavalry around this time isn't entirely clear, but light cavalry was more typical. That would have been sufficient to pen in and exhaust the hoplites, even if it wasn't well suited for charging into the solid wall of a phalanx. The Greeks could feasibly hold their position in the middle of hostile territory with no additional supplies, but they couldn't do so for long. Whatever the actual combat looked like, the Greeks were either too exhausted or outnumbered to really succeed. The allied Greek army was broken, with each contingent fleeing to their own home cities and the leader of the Eritrean allies killed in battle. Aristagoras had sold his mainland allies the image of the Persians as weak, decadent, and easily demoralized, which in his defense had been the recent experience. But faced with exactly the opposite, the Athenians and Eritreans called off the alliance and went home. The Athenians had had enough, but for better or worse, the Persians would come back for them. Once the Greeks were routed, the Persian attackers at Ephesus turned back and regrouped at Sardis. Presumably, this reprisal force was too small and lightly armed to besiege the Ionian cities then and there. The Ionians, still in need of allies, and still technically successful in their attack on Sardis, sent word north to the Greek cities of the Hellespont and Propontis, and south to Caria. Over the course of 498 BCE, Greek poles in both directions ousted their tyrants and rebelled against the Persian Empire. Ionian troops marched into Byzantium and captured the key crossing between Asia and Europe. And when the news of the revolt reached Cyprus, the large island went into revolt as well. Both sides had now won major battles. But the war was on, and it was Persia's turn to make the next move. And we will pick up with the Persian offensive against the Ionian cities next time. Until then, if you want more information about the podcast, my bibliography, the Achaemenid family tree, down to the children of Darius, or any other information relating to the show, you can go to historyofpersiapodcast.com. You can contact me there, or you can go through any of my social media. I'm on Facebook and Instagram as the History of Persia Podcast, and I'm on Twitter as just at History of Persia. Remember, you still have a week to submit your name for the sticker giveaway. I'm giving away a couple of stickers with the name of the show in Persian Kanea form on it. All you have to do to get that is send me a message on any of those contact platforms, and you'll be entered into the drawing to win. While you're waiting for a new episode to come out, if you're enjoying the show or if you're excited for what comes next, leave a review on the platform of your choice. Apple Podcast has the best known one, but you can also do it on Stitcher or Facebook. Any way of giving feedback about the show is always greatly appreciated. Until next time, thank you all so much for listening to The History of Persia.
Enjoy all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using code Buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet. When you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, and the best daily promotions in the business. And with BetMGM at your fingertips, every play and every game matters more than ever. Place your money line prop or parlay bets with the king of sports books today sign up using code buckeye and receive up to $1,500 back in bonus bets if you don't win your first bet bet mgm and GameSense remind you to play responsibly 21 plus and present in ohio subject to eligibility requirements rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days gambling problem call 1-800-GAMBLER in partnership with mgm northfield park Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.